Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking the reality of the energy transition and the challenges around forecasting the demand for energy in the future and how we're going to meet that. We stand on the cusp of a technology revolution in cloud computing and AI and all the cascading use cases and technologies for those, all of which are far more consumptive in power than previous technologies. In order to decarbonize, what does that mean for the material demands? In copper, in lithium, in all of those products that go into the hardware that generate the renewable technologies. Are the predictions around energy transition over-optimistic? And if so, what does that mean for the planet and where investment should go? Our guest is Mark Mills, a physicist, a Manhattan Institute senior fellow, faculty fellow at Northwestern University, and partner in Montrose Lane, an energy tech venture fund. Mark is also an author, and his latest book, The Cloud Revolution, talks to how new computing technologies are going to unleash an economic boom in the 2020s and what that means for energy consumption. As always, please do leave a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It allows us to gain the variety of guests and different viewpoints that I think makes this podcast valuable. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to join you. Thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm also sort of half terrified of, <laughs> you know, some of the reaction. But we'll, we'll, essentially, we're, we're, we've, we've got two parts. And the first is leaning on your work and a lot of the research that you've been doing and some of the, the tech investing as your background into the technological pivot that you believe that we're going through uh, that is being unleashed through computing and, and actually the power and energy consumption that's going to drive and then what that means for the energy transition if there is such a thing, and and talk around the challenges you see there. So let's, I guess, can we just start before we get into that? Can, we, can you just share a, a couple of lines on, on you and, 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 and how you got to both your book, The Cloud Revolution, and obviously looking very deeply into the, the energetics and the material energy nexus, as you call it? Well, I guess you'd have to say I've always been fascinated by how things work, you know, machines, services, biophysical systems, natural systems. I mean, it's, and if you're an investor, that's sort of what you try to do as well. You want to know how, the, what the claims are, what people are telling you that you want, they want you to invest in, how they work. Uh, certainly in policy circles, it matters, figure out how, th- how markets work, how people react. So, I mean, it sounds simplistic, but since my, my career began in semiconductors and microprocessors and then missile guidance and fiber optics, Sort of began there. I got involved in nuclear energy later in my life, and in the mining industry, and then in then in a venture fund and public policy. So, I've, in a sense, you could say I've never held on a job long enough to <laughs> to become profoundly good at it, I guess. But I've had a lot of different experiences in my various careers, and they really all pivot around trying to figure out where technology is going. Because anything to do with energy is really about technology. It should be self evident. And anything to do with our economy, setting aside the stipulation that's important, rule of law, free markets, or at least reasonably free markets, ability to function, all those things matter enormously. You know, not being in wars, those beyond obvious, those things matter. But those are 
endemic to human nature for thousands of years. The biggest difference between the present and the past and the biggest difference between the present and the future are the kinds of technologies that we are invent and are able to deploy at scale. Understanding that that tells you much more about what the near future is going to be like than I would say aspirational forecasts. So that's what animated the book. The book's thread is the cloud because the cloud is the biggest a new infrastructure that humanity's ever built. It's obviously an important feature of our lives in social media news, but it's much bigger than that, much more than that. We're very early days. We're in fact, what you could call the end of the beginning of the cloud era, not the beginning, the end of it. So that thread is carries for the book, but I write a lot about, and I've researched a lot about the other domains that matter, how we make things, you know, how, how people are employed, the nature of education and entertainment and healthcare, the nature of materials available to make things, the kinds of machines we have. There's a complex, obvious interaction amongst all these different domains. In that interaction, sort of the intersection, if you like, of different advances in different spheres is really what drives the future. It's not looking at the future through a single product or service is uh, as soon as you state it, it should be self-evident. That's not a good way to try to guess what the future might look like. You can look at just at cars or just at airplanes, just at computers. I'll tell you something about that, but I won't tell you more broadly about where the economy is going. And there is an appendix. I know this is a bit of an aside, but there's an appendix in the book about the business of futurism and forecasting. Yeah. And, you know, sort of striking how, how right some calls have been and how off some others. And it seems to be, to me, the sort of the off ones are more about timing and the sort of telescoping and the collapsing of time based on sort of desires and expectations and necessarily fundamental calls being wrong, right? Well, I guess, yeah, and it is an appendix. I mean, I, I had earlier on, I had it as an early chapter, but decided it was a distraction from the book's thesis. And in fact, the appendix should become, probably will become a, a separate book at some point in the future. You know, the, the art and science of forecasting. I wouldn't be the first to write a book like that. It's been a lot written about it. But I've, I've, I've shelves full of books about forecasting. Not, not forecast, but about forecasting, how you do it. And uh, there's, more, there's more categories than getting the timing wrong. I mean, people make category errors, for example, because they misunderstand the underlying nature. So, for, well, let's use a Henry Ford said there'd be flying cars. He thought they were inevitable. I, I agree with him. They are. But boy, did he get the timing wrong? Because we're talking about, he said that in the 1920s. <laughs> he, mm. he, he was off by more than a century. H.G. Uh, Wells thought we'd go to the moon and he was right, but he was off by well over a century. So those are, that's a timing issue. But if you said, we're going to go to the moon by flying an airplane, you got a category error problem, right? Because airplanes need air and there's no air in space. And I'm being slightly facetious, but not entirely so. When the advent of the discovery of controlled nuclear fission, aside from apocalyptic predictions, also had people very excited about tiny nuclear reactors making it possible for airplanes to fly forever and cars to drive forever. In fact, the U.S. Air Force actually spent billions of dollars trying to build a nuclear-powered airplane and flew one. That kind of forecast for expectation is a category error because it's a misunderstanding of the underlying technology. So you have those kinds of errors throughout history. And, and then you have uh, errors that are just that occur because people fundamentally misunderstand the, the, the controlling physics, if you like, or the nature of nature. 
or the nature of human nature. So some forecasts require human behaviors to change. And on the margins, human behaviors have changed over time, but not on the fundamental things. So I, that's, yeah. a, that's a little bit of what I attempt. But yes, the t- timing, is, timing is a big deal because uh, if you're an investor or a policymaker putting other people's money to work, not yours, uh, you, you know, being right too early is not very helpful because, uh, t- because of the time value of money. Mm. Well, I bring it up because I think it's relevant to the discussion we're about to have about ultimately how achievable the energy transition is, because there's a question of whether that's a timing error or a, or a category error to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly the well, let's, let's, the, the book is about sort of and, and Daniel Jurgen writes a writes you know a, a, a review of it which is you know obviously a friend of the show for us but he talks about how the how this book is about the future of work and how the 20s will be a, a roaring because of the new economy made possible by the cloud so let's let's at least start there and, and the reason for that is of course this has profound impacts on the consumption of energy yes. that we are we are going to need and and as you highlight again and again, there's probably a real, whether it's a, a, a timing error you know, or a category error or whatever, you know, it, the, the forecast today are probably quite far off the orders of magnitude that we will need, given the revolution that's ongoing in technology. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're astronomically off. They're not just a little bit off. <laughs> and, they, and so the, the energy domain is, is full of both category errors and uh, timing errors and foundational errors, all, all classes. So the, I, the category error is, are, are thinking about the evolution, for example, of computers, you know, computing tech is being constantly analogized to the evolution of energy tech, clean tech. And it's a category error. They have no, they have no correlation on how they evolve. Different, different domains, different magisteria of physics entirely and don't scale the same way. In fact, they scale inversely, weirdly. At the underlying level, the challenge we're having now with so-called energy transition is precisely the two things of getting, getting, a, a, guessing the future demand right, because the demand for energy really drives everything by definition. And the other is getting the velocity of what it's possible to change right in big industrial systems. So if, if one believes, as I do, and I try to set out in my book, the thesis that that the potential for economic growth, which is in, invariably technology centric, productivity is the core of economic growth. Productivity comes from technology. You know, more, more and better outputs at lower costs with fewer inputs of labor, materials, and energy. That's just the nature. That's what productivity is by definition. That comes from technology. If we are at an inflection of profoundly more interesting, useful energy using technologies, because wealth is driven primarily by energy using technologies. You know, an airplane is an energy using technology by definition and has a lot of economic implications in terms of adding lubrication to markets, creating new classes of entertainment, which is tourism. So if you get the forecast wrong on what demand will be, you, you, you really have a problem because you have to, it changes the velocity of the supply, obviously. And if, if we got that wrong, and I think we do, and I would say we have it wrong in this way, prior to the invention of the airplane, there was no demand for energy to, for aviation, self-evidently. So you'd have to ask yourself, what are innovators inventing now 
that is now becoming commercially viable in the foreseeable useful future that will use more energy because they are, but they use energy in ways we've never used it before. Before computers, there was no energy demand for computing and computing globally now uses twice as much electricity as the country of Japan does for all purposes. So you have new vectors for demand when you invent new ways of doing things, providing services, new forms of entertainment or new forms of healthcare, if you like. So if you get that mm. wrong, you miss a lot. And economists never get that right. That's not what they're good at. They're good at hindcasting, not forecasting fundamental technology change. And the, oh, the other thing, of course, is forecasting what you can do with the technologies we have today to produce energy to operate things. That takes you into a different realm. It is obviously technology-centric, but there you have different velocities because we're not creating new things. We're trying to do something expand the existence of old things and the velocities of, of adding new energy systems or new industrial technologies to markets is extremely well understood and well known or put maybe more simplistically the velocity of demand can change faster than the velocity of supply in in the technology spheres that we care about okay so so can we just dig into that i, I the book talks about the silicon engines i'd love to talk, i'd love to talk about why you see such a an increase in demand and, and tie that into the the revolution that's going on in the cloud because you know the book struck me as as this is almost sort of a quite a hidden revolution right because it's so you know to the general reader it's quite esoteric what's going on in terms of of of, of chip development and ai deployment and and actually the power consumption that sits behind that. So can you just spend a, a few minutes just helping us understand kind of where we're at and why you think it's a pivot point? Yeah, it's you know it's it. No one really thinks about the energy co co cost of computing. They do now a little bit because of the publicity around bitcoins using you know bitcoin mining machines, which is a euphemism for you know computers that are running twenty four seven to solve a math problem, right? And the math problem is that infamous one to, to get the solution that gives you a quote Bitcoin. So that obviously uses electricity, but it, it really wasn't on anybody's radar to think about as an aggregate issue. Now it's a practical matter. You know, I began my career in the semiconductor processing industry and you, you could say in a, in a very simple terms, which is accurate, the goal, the goal in computing was never to make compu computers uh, smaller. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to take the amount of energy out of each logic operation. That it, it's obvious why, you know, the ENIAC, the first computer was, you know, almost 20 kilowatts, which is, you know, a really big house or for regular average houses of power to do something that we now, you know, in hindsight was not even as good as a, it's a trivial, you know, calculator you can buy for a few, few pennies. So you wanted to get energy out of each logic operation. You got that out by making this, the, the switches smaller. I mean, it's that simple, smaller switches. You could switch faster with less energy and you just keep shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. So you look at that and say, well, that should mean we've had, we, we should not be using very much energy for computing because we've, we've shrunk them down from vacuum tube size, literally to virus size. You know, transistors are, are measured in uh, you know, fractions of micro, microns, you know, billions, billions of inches or billions of centimeters are tiny. The problem is we make lots of them. We, each, each operation, each logic operation has a trivial amount of electricity, but we, we manufacture now globally more transistors then the world grows grains of wheat and rice combined. <laughs> That's, I mean, think about that. We manufacture a product <laughs> at that scale. So trivial amount of electricity used to make each one of those 
grains of silicon operate really add up when the scales are that big. Uh, so let's let's do it this way. People think about computing and think that you have in your hand a smartphone which has, roughly speaking, ten thousand times the computing horsepower of an IBM mainframe from the eighties. So why do, why does the world use so much electricity for computing? Well, there's billions of there's billions of those smartphones in the world, literally, and they're at the time of the mainframe's ascendancy, there are only thousands of those in the world. So you you could do math here. You could figure out you know ten thousand fold reduction of power for one thing, but you increase the other thing by a million fold. That's arithmetically you get more demand. Or put in sort of mathematical terms, the rate of of efficiency improvement in computing is slower than the rate of the demand growth for the computing that's produced. So as computing gets less energy costly and less expensive, the appetite to use things for computers and communications grows far faster. And here's the irony. There's in all physical things, there's a limit to the demand, right? There's a limit to how many hours you want to spend in a car, how much food you can eat. And you can eat a lot, but there's a limit, right? There's a limit to how, how big buildings can get. All these things have really clear limits. There's no limit to the quantity of data that we want. There's no limit to the amount of information we want to extract out of nature and operations of systems, which means directly that there's no limit to the demand for silicon, if you like. And so it gets it gets to be an interesting problem that the tech industry is anxious about. It's gone from not talking about that to now obviously being a leader and champions of the quote energy transition and trying to, you know, source their energy from quote unquote clean sources. But that's a set aside where where the electricity comes from. It's indisputably the case that global computing now uses astonishing amount of electricity, the whole ecosystem, making computers, operating them, transmitting the information, storing the data. And now we're at an inflection that's particularly interesting because we've converted computing from desktop or office into a utility function in the cloud. And it's essentially what you do with the cloud. It's a utility function. It doesn't eliminate the computing on the edges. In fact, it sort of amplifies the computing on the edges. But utility structures, whether it's for gas or oil or for electricity or for telephony, utility structures bring economies of scale, cause ubiquity of distribution, if you like, and and accelerate the the access and use to that service. So that's what's going on. And so where we are, as I said earlier, is that the global cloud broad ecosystem now uses as much electricity as the country of Japan times two. So it's a big electricity consuming uh, infrastructure. In fact, you could say it's the biggest single energy consuming infrastructure probably in the world today and growing faster than any other infrastructure. But we've done something really unusual through the advent of inference computing, inference engines, which is the, the misnomer of artificial intelligence, but using computing to look at pictures like x-rays provide advice about not just where you're driving, but about decisions made in supply chains, that whole domain of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's the most energy intensive form of computing possible. It's the, in energy terms, it's the difference between, oh, I don't know, uh, an Austin Mini and a semi-trailer. It's the, <laughs> the reason it's, it's big yeah. a difference is that to do machine learning and inference you have to have very powerful engines and you have to run them 24-7, flat out. Whereas most computing is cyclical. You know, you do a calculation, the computer goes quiescent and you, you could share computing resources because they're not being used all the time. Not true with machine learning, not true with inference. They run flat out 
and the actual underlying chips, the so-called inference chips, the GPUs, the graphics processing units, the all the, there's all kinds of different names now for for the non-computational feature of using silicon. These these uh, chips are roughly a thousand times more energy intensive in how we use them compared to computer chips that we've been using for the last 30 years. Yeah. When we first spoke, you had a couple of remarkable things to say. One was that some of this is also massively hidden, right? So so it, this isn't as tangible as filling up your car. And, and, you, and you think about your energy footprint during the day. You know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, an hour long Zoom call, when you add it all together, you know, has the same carbon footprint as driving your car for a couple of miles. And then as you allude to that, the chat GPT is an order of magnitude more uh, in terms of energy consumption than a, than, a, than a Google search. And in fact, you know, today I was talking to a, a senior executive in commercial real estate who works with their renewables platform, et cetera. And, you know, and part of what he said, which was fascinating, was that look, you've got to realize that the, what's enabling chat GPT is in part the Bitcoin crash because all of those GPUs have, have freed up and suddenly actually the, the cost has gone down to actually performing these searches so that you can allow it for free. I mean, that's just remarkable, the energy consumption. It's it's a cute it's a cute analogy, but it's actually not true. I hate to dis uh, dispute your oh god, but but in terms of the in terms of who's buying the GPUs, that's true. He's absolutely right about that. The Bitcoin miners buy GPUs to speed up their you know their their, their calculations, and so that market is is really soft. And it was predictable that market would would soften. It had nothing to do with the Bitcoin crash. It had to do with the fact that the cryptocurrencies are not useful if they're that difficult to create or crypto exchanges or digital exchanges of currency. So, you know, Ethereum has taken a lot of the, you know, the uh, energy overhead out of, out of the uh, blockchain and there'll be, so Bitcoin will be Bitcoin maybe forever, but that's just one corner of what's left of the crypto network. But the, the point, the point he's making is correct. There's the appetite to buy GPUs. And it's not just GPUs, but the graphics processing units are the, part of this uh, is much bigger in the machine learning and artificial domain than it is for Bitcoins. And look, the JATGBT has to learn. So the learning phase, the machine learning phase, how long computers are run, and these by computers, these are usually supercomputers, how long they run uh, and how intensely they run, how big they are, depends on the task that you're trying to, to learn. And they and you can't learn once and be static as you use. No, ChatGPT is not connected to the internet and says that it's continually learning. It learned once, and now it's performing its parlor tricks. But you you ultimately for any application of AI have to have a learning phase. Like for, for any, that's the same for people. The learning phase changes over time, and learning phases are extraordinarily, extraordinarily energy intensive. A learning phase for an AI application can consume as much energy as it takes to fly a you know A three eighty to to Asia from from Europe. I mean, it's uh, extraordinarily energy intensive. And then the the inference phrase, learning the using is also very energy intensive, but it depends on the application. Learning how to write poetry and spewing back cute poems in Shakespearean English about silly stuff. It's, it's very much, it's an order of magnitude more energy intensive than using Google search, but it's an order of magnitude less energy intensive than using machine learning and inference, say, to read uh, x-rays from uh, a diagnostic for diagnostic purposes 
but there is this big shift that's going on. It's, it's causing a lot of um, anxiety, I think, in some cases, which are some silly anxieties, some realistic ones about things like the ease with which we can do deep fakes, pictures and voices, but that's, that's not news. But what's being missed, what's being missed here are sort of two parts of the story. One is what will AI, things like chat GPT really be used to do? And we know that there's been some serious writing about this and it's in my book as well. It'll be used to amplify humans to make them more productive, more productive people. And we have a shortage of people in the labor force now in the Western world, and we'll have a bigger shortage of people in the future. So things like AI are coming at a great time to amplify the shortage of labor. And they will not only amplify the shortage of labor, but they'll amplify it in a way that's highly economically productive. And and over the predictably useful future of the next decade, probably bring faster GDP growth than we expect. And GDP growth, we're back to the energy stuff, setting aside what the computing is using, that's the least of it. GDP growth causes wealth growth. Wealth growth causes behaviors that consume more energy in a free society. People buy more cars, they take more vacations, they buy bigger houses, they buy more healthcare. The pharmaceuticals industry itself is roughly 400% more energy intensive per dollar of product than the rest of the manufacturing sector. And we want lots more of manufacturing of useful pharmaceuticals at lower cost. So there's a this huge potential push for energy demand coming from just economic growth, not, not just from the machines that drive the growth, but just the consequence of those machines, whether they're whether they're um, you know, artificial intelligence machines that are sophisticated or not sophisticated. And, and that says nothing about whether or not there's an invention of entirely new classes of machines that will also consume energy. You could say, and one could say, and should say that the, the maturation of an artificial intelligence chip is a different class of machine than a computational chip. It obviously it is. And when, when, um, when NVIDIA came out with their first really single-chip GPU, 1999, it was a category change. It was a category change as big as the first you know, integrated circuit after discrete chips back in the 1970s. And both those characteristic changes going from one kind of technology to another lead to both economic growth and new industries and both increased energy consumption, both to feed that industry, to build the stuff, to operate this stuff and for the downstream consequence of those technologies being used, which also increases energy demand. Right. So, okay. So, so we have a picture there and I think a convincing argument that we, we are probably underestimating. We certainly are underestimating future energy demand, demand and the, the reality of one, again, it points back to this picture. We did an episode with Adam Rosenzweig about the, you know, the, the development of humanity is the development of more energy consumption. Uh, and, and you take that argument forward and we come to the energy transition, which you, you as a physicist, as an investor, as a, as a futurist, have spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about as well. And, and this is probably where the conversation starts to get, you know, challenging for a lot of the audience, right? Because, you know, there is a lot of <laughs> expectations out, you know, the, the, the energy transition is seen front and center to the necessity of humanity continuing. And putting that aside for a minute, well, there is a lot of expectations around the role of being able to, within, let's call it, 17 years, switch to renewables, switch to alternative sources of energy. 
before we get into, well, I, I guess the other big part of energy demand comes in material consumption, mining, refining, and so forth. So I'd, I'd love to sort of start there because you, you do have throughout your book, you have chapters on the energy material nexus. You know, this is this this sort of is a thread that weaves through the book about how we're going to meet the energy demand. So let's sort of just start perhaps by understanding the reality of material consumption when it comes to energy energy transition. And and you you've spoken elsewhere very clearly and eloquently about the idea that we're moving from sort of a, a liquids and a, and a gases world to a a heavy commodity, a hards world, a solids world. Well, for, uh, very quickly, uh, one thing I would add to, and I haven't met Adam, but he's, they, they do great work. They're brilliant, brilliant analysts. They really are. It's not that the history of humanity has increased energy use. It's not just that, right? It's the key, the key feature of the history of humanity is that we've not only increased energy use, but the share of the GDP, the share of any economy that's associated with paying for food and fuel and the, the, both energy has collapsed. And that that is the, the the single most remarkable feature and the single most important feature of our present compared to all of all of history is how little of economies are devoted to literally survival, the spending money on fuel and food. So we went from 80 percent of economies devoted to acquiring fuel and food to in, in the Western world, 10 to 15 percent, depending on you know which country, what's going on. This is a big deal because that means all that wealth is being used for other things, in entertainment, education, healthcare, protecting the environment. Those all come from the access to wealth that's not being devoted to uh, getting food and fuel. And it, then if you think about the history of energy, because there really are very few phenomenologies. There just aren't. There's really only three ways you can get energy into society at the fundamental level. You either burn something, and that's been the dominant thing that humanity has done, or you capture the energy of moving something that's moving. And there's really only a couple of things that, that move a lot to be captured. It's the wind and water. <laughs> it's pretty hot. So you convert that motion into, into useful power. And then, you know, in the last century, we figured out how to capture some atomic phenomena to make useful power. And that's of course, solar electricity and nuclear fission are both fundamentally atomic phenomena, but the world has depended on for two centuries burning something uh, because mm. combustion is really a remarkable thermochemical process that we, could, we know a lot about, we could do a, a lot with. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Roughly speaking, at the world today, right? And, and this is from some of your, your previous presentations and so forth, right? The world is at three, roughly four percent renewable usage to generate the energy that it has. And if we were to try and achieve an Norway status, right? So let's whatever whatever number we want to pick in terms of achieving renewable sources, you know, consumption of energy, 
50, 80%, whatever you want to achieve. I, I kind of want to start on the supply side because I want to really carefully pick this part so that uh, everyone feels that we're sort of marching on the same page and you know can jump off with specific challenges as they arise. But the uh, just staying on the sort of material supply side, your argument or you know, your analysis, I should say, is that in that world of moving from kind of liquids and gases to technologies and therefore hardware, the sheer material heavy lift that's going to take is both underestimated and almost uh, just mind-boggling in terms of the the, the volume <laughs> required to shift yeah. And, yeah. and certainly economically unfeasible. Yeah, I think I think it's underestimated, and I think it it's probably fair to say, but it sounds like hyperbole. It will be impossible to achieve at the scales and the timeframes people imagine, because all energy machines have to be built from something. So that's sort of the the starting point of the, the work that I've been writing in, about a lot lately. It's not so. It's not about the economics per se. The economics are derivative, and it's not about aspirations. It, the, the motives for the aspirations. The question you'd have to ask yourself is you is you push society away from dominantly liquids and gases. More than half of all the world's energy comes from liquids and gases, which are really easy to move and really easy to store. And that's natural gas and oil. And then you want to switch that, set a coal aside, because it's obviously not liquid or gas, and it's it's only uh, 10, 10, 15% of world's energy. So we're really talking about liquids and gases. And what we want to do is replace that with wind and solar. And to be clear, the IEA's forecasts and all the aspirations for transitions are entirely anchored wind, solar, and batteries. You know, 70% of all the net new energy supply in the transition forecast come from wind and solar. So it's a wind and solar vision. So what you'd want to know, and the IEA has done an admirable job on this. Staff reports are very good. Lots of other groups have done very good work on this. I use prime research. I look at what other people have done who understand the mining industry. How much, how many pounds of materials and metals do you need to mine to build the machines? to deliver the same unit of energy to society, the same hour of driving, the same hour of heat, the same hour of computing time. And we know, it's just, this is indisputable, we know that the increased quantity of the metals we have to mine, refine, and process to deliver the same unit of energy, the increased quantities range from 400% to over 4,000%, depending on the metal you're choosing. So we, we are creating with this, quote, transition, or the rather set the transition issue aside. We are creating with the mandates, requirements, or desires to replace liquids and gas machines with non-liquids and gas machines, not just an incredible increase in the call on metals and minerals, which are a priori solids, and building these machines, but an increase in demand that has never been seen in history before in these kind of timeframes. It's the astonishing numbers. So this is an industry, the global mining industry, where increases in demand of 10 and 20% are really quite remarkable. And over periods of a decade or two decades, increases in demand of 50% or 100% are really huge and take a long, a lot of effort to meet. But when you start talking about increases of hundreds and thousands of percent over a decade or two, it's, this is, I, I mean, I use the word delusion in one of my papers because it's, I think it is. It's hard to call it anything other than delusional. There's no evidence we have the capacity to do that. The mineral sector is a big industry. We know lots about the mining industry. There's lots of data on it. In fact, the mining industry today, globally, just think in terms of this magnitude of this business, 
if, if you did it in energy and materials terms, it's about 40% of the total industrial sector's energy use. Or, put, or it uses more energy than global aviation, uses almost as much oil, in fact, as alone as global aviation. It's a, it's a very big industry, very slow moving. It's global. It's a very different supply chains. But the whole argument distills to answering questions like, how much copper are we going to need? Not exotic stuff like neodymium, presidium, and dysprosium, you know, and iridium. I mean, those matter for everything from electrolyzers for hydrogen to electric generators and wind turbines. Those all, those all matter. But, it, but just the really conventional metals of copper, nickel, and aluminum, for example, the demand for those to build wind turbines, solar arrays, and batteries, the demand for those to achieve the stated goals not only exceed by many or many orders what we're now producing or, or planning to produce, they they exceed by huge margins any of the announced plans that any of the mining industries anywhere in the world has said they're going to put in place to produce those quantities of metals. So this this is uh, then you want did you want to ask how far along that path do we get and, and what are the economic impacts of this kind of demand pushing against slower supply? This is question answers itself. What kind of environmental impacts are there from the kind of pursuit of what you'd have to call rapacious expansion of mining, unprecedented in history, in the fragile ecosystems where we actually mine, which is typically not in our pristine backyards, but more often in Africa, uh, in Asia, in South America. You'd have to ask, and you should ask, and people are starting to ask what the geopolitical implications are. Where are those mines? And more importantly, where are the refineries? that convert the raw metals and minerals into useful form. We have answers to all these things. We have ranges of answers and we have very specific answers. I, I'll give credit to World Bank and IMF and the IEA and others. They, they've answered many of these questions as have EU studies, but the, the answers to these questions are very rarely percolating up into changing any of the claims, forecasts, or aspirations. And this is you know, borderline surreal because it's very, very difficult to reach the conclusion that we're actually going to be able to, let's just stick with copper, have enough copper to build a quantity of electric motors and transmission systems and uh, power plants, uh, solar and wind type that are being subsidized, mandated or required. And so you, you know that this won't end well. Something will happen. Well, we, one of the things that will happen is the cost of those metals will rise and rise a lot more yet for as long as the demand stays up because the supply can't come on f online fast enough. Setting aside the world's not planning to do the, the supply increase. It's not, it's not in the data. Wouldn't McKenzie has great data on this, not even close. But even if governments decide to subsidize it and push it harder, they're gonna have to uh, decide to eliminate all the environmental permit permitting rules that they'd like to have for any other kind of industrial process like mining, which they might do. And then they have to look at what the typical timelines are from proving on a new mineral ore and to getting it to become an operational mine. We have lots of data on that. I mean, the average globally is 16 years. So we're talking about a time period from if we started tomorrow to begin to find and open up these mines to when they're going to be available longer than the points at time in which we've already wanted to have all those metals. It's truly bizarre. I mean, it just... It continues to puzzle me as I read statements and the hand-waving responses for how we're going to solve the problem of getting this much metal and these much minerals 
into play to build all these machines. Mm. Is this a problem of sort of fractals in a sense that because this is a live debate, this is a live conversation, you know, I've just returned from the FT Commodities Summit where the, the global commodity trading houses were decrying the lack of investment. Well, I don't know whether they're decrying it or not. It might work for their benefit, but certainly highlighting the absolute structural lack of investment into, say, things like copper and against the demand. And, and you know, we've had Simon Moles on talking about the, the challenges around lithium and a global battery arms race. Is it perhaps the macro quantum picture that you're alluding to that, that everyone is missing? That, you know, you've got this obviously... I you know, potentially hugely unforecasted demand in energy consumption, but actually it's when you look at this on a macro scale that very few people are doing. You mentioned the the IMF, et cetera, the IEA, that this sort of the sheer scale hoves into view and you realize that this might be coming back to the very start of the conversation, an error of timing for sure uh, in terms of actually being able to do, I mean, essentially you're saying this is such a heavy lift even if it were to happen, it's not going to happen within a 2050 timeframe. Right. That's so it is both a, um, it's a timing problem in two ways. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Malthusian. I'm an anti-Malthusian. The, the planet has plenty of copper. It exists. The issue is whether, whether we're willing to go where we, we can get it and how long it takes to get to it and how long it takes to develop technologies that give us superior ways to find it and uh, produce it. Right. This is, We've done this for centuries. We'll keep doing it. So that will keep happening. But it's going to take far longer than 10 or 20 years, far, far longer. I mean, these are half century trends, not 10 or 20 year trends. And then invoking that we'll have better technologies that will require less metal. I mean, a battery that weighs a half ton, which is what the average electric car battery weighs in the outside of China. If you could get the same amount of energy by doubling the energy density, so you get a 500 pound battery instead of a you know, 1,000 pound battery. That's a big deal, except that means that the metal increase you have, let's say one of the ones that I need to increase 4,000% only has to go up 2,000%, which is also unachievable. And then people invoke recycling. This is a silly invocation because the materials available for recycling won't be available till we've finished using them at the end of the useful life, which is, as everybody keeps telling us, you know, it's 20 years for the solar arrays, 20, 20 years before the wind turbines are taken out of service, 10 years at least before the batteries are taken out of service. So in that next 10 or 20 years, we have to expand supply. The macro one is what really matters. And, you know, there's been good work done. You know, the, the Finnish Geological Survey has done some excellent work. I think you've talked with them. You distill it to the, the most simple terms. A car, electric car takes on the order of a few hundred pounds more copper, a few hundred pounds more aluminum per car. Well, you start making tens of millions of cars, it adds up, you know, to many tons of, of copper and aluminum. You can wind that into models of where the copper is, how much we produce now, how much how much faster you can do all these things. It's not that, that any one of them by themselves or any one niche can't be done. It's you can't do it for all of them with everybody doing it for all of them at the same time in the next 10 or 20 years. It just It just won't happen. This is sort of my point. It's not that things over the next century won't change and that there won't be lots more wind turbines and solar arrays and electric cars. There will be. The combination of the velocity of supply, especially in metals, with the velocity of demand in the world, assuming we don't have a global depression, they just, they create tensions in the opposite direction. There's a, almost a billion five cars in the world today, replacing a billion five cars. And, you know, you can do this on the back of the envelope, electric cars, just for the copper and aluminum 
It's a, it's a huge number. I mean, it's just an astonishing number. But then that's not a static number because the world wants to be wealthier. And there are billions of people who have no car. Never mind the Western world. We have more cars than there are people. There is most of the world where most humans live don't have a car at all. There's sort of eight, eight or nine people per car instead of, you know, two cars per person in many, many countries in Europe. So this is this is a disconnect at the macro level of, of profound character. And it's not it's not solvable by throwing money at it because you can't subsidize everything infinitely in the, in the economy, obviously. And even if you do that, you don't change the underlying velocities of these systems or the underlying physics of the things we're building. Uh, you know, unforecasted demand and this velocity of supply being a real issue you to move all over to renewables. I mean, this is not necessary. This again, this is a live conversation on the micro level. Companies, projects are dealing with this today, right? How are you going to stand up a, a battery supply chain that's going to take you somewhere between seven and ten years at best? Even not accounting for permitting and you know increasing interest rates. I mean, is this at the policy level at the government? I mean, where does is this sort of a a secret and unspeakable, or or is it just actually the the awareness, the zeitgeist of energy transition, the push to renewables is relatively recent, certainly much longer in Europe. That this kind of level of thinking at the macro level, the policy level, just hasn't percolated up yet. I mean, I'm just sort of trying to understand that piece. Well, I think that's probably true. I think what's happened, of course, is a lot of the debate becomes hyper-political. You know, it's a, you, the politicization of these issues is, is rank and obvious. And so people uh, attach their goals and aspirations either to politics or tribal, tribal beliefs or self-interest because of their, their appetites, or they may actually passionately believe something but the it hasn't been framed in a way that policymakers have really absorbed the limits, or maybe put differently that we've all become much more aware of something in the financial markets called systemic risk. <laughs> That's right. That's, so people understand in financial markets intuitively how you can have a systemic risk that can that can domino into other financial institutions because they're all connected. So I, maybe the right way to get around the problem in the in the, the physics and materials and energy is to talk in terms of systemic risk, right? If at the micro level, you you know you may be in a company planning to to build a battery factory service, and you have to you, one should look around at what everybody else is doing. It's kind of like in the subprime market. What what is everybody else doing? How will it affect my micro plans? Because if every battery factory that gets built actually comes online. And this is just a way of thinking about it in a systemic risk perspective. I'd want to know if if I'm the investor and I own that battery factory or piece of it, you know, am I at risk in any particular way of that asset being worthless? I mean, I'm everybody's operating on the assumption that the, that asset has worth because you wouldn't spend a couple billion building it if you didn't think it had value. And you clearly have a, some expectation of its lifetime value. So you, you'd want to ask two questions that impact the, the systemic risk associated impacting your micro decision, what are the costs likely to be? What are the potential costs for the input materials I need to buy? Because, you know, batteries, battery factories with batteries themselves, about 70% of the cost to make a batteries in the bill of materials, the, the chemicals and, and metals that you need to build the battery. So you, you probably want to be smart and realistic about gaming what the probable cost for those things will be. 
you know, it's it's about a billion, a billion and a half year of materials buying per gigafactory of chemicals and metals that you have to purchase. Is that number going to be a billion a year, two years out or three billion a year? And how does that affect my economics at battery factory, especially considering there are hundreds of others of those being built chasing exactly the same materials that I'm chasing? So the systemic risk that's being created by governments pushing, mandating, encouraging everybody to do the same thing at the same time is 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 real. I mean, it's no different than governments giving away free money and creating low interest rates. You create a systemic risk. We're doing exactly the same thing in the materials world for wind, solar, and batteries. And it's not difficult to to imagine building models that would game this out. Not not for the world or for a country, but rather for the business, the specific business that's making a bet that they're going to make money on these billions of dollars of investments. But does one believe that uh, those minerals are going to get cheaper in the future? Let's stick with copper. Are we going to have enough copper? And if we do, at what price? Do we think it's going to be back to where it was six years ago, which is half the price of today, or going to be double the price tomorrow? How does that how does that affect the cost of my electric vehicle? Because it's very metal sensitive. All these things are knowable. I don't I doesn't appear to me anybody's gaming them. And the fact that everybody's chasing it, not just Elon Musk all by himself, who was there first, but that everybody's chasing it, but by definition creates a systemic risk. And I, I don't discount the reasons and the motivations that companies and boards have to make specific microeconomic decisions from, you know, but from a national perspective. And, and they may feel fully justified or properly motivated in terms of their philosophy and the government incentives. I get all that, but everybody's doing it or trying to make sure it happens. This is a systemic issue. And the idea that we will replace, back to the number you pointed out, 3% of the world's energy comes from wind and solar combined. And we're displacing under 1% of world's light duty vehicle transportation oil with electric vehicles so far. So we're at trivial percentages. The idea that we're going to flip that over in 10 or 20 years with for eight for easily or if at all but with more importantly trying to do it with no systemic consequence is breathtakingly naive are we talking here and it's kind of time to put my steel helmet on are we talking here a delayed transition or, or are you talking or is essentially the premise that it's it's a chimera yeah it's a chimera there's no transition that's just simply put and this is different than saying why there should or shouldn't be a transition. We haven't had a transition that, uh, so far. And the transition, to say the transition, is there's one and it's been accelerating, is a, a complete hash of the English language. You know, we're 20 years into spending at least $5 trillion, probably more than that, to avoid hydrocarbons in the Western world. And we've gone from essentially zero to 3% of world's energy all in from wind and hydro. You could maybe, it's 3.5% now. Burning wood is 10% of world's energy, roughly, about 9% burning wood. So we haven't managed to get wind and solar to transition away from wood, much less beat it yet. And this is a lot of money into it. So if the transition language means that we're transitioning in the next 20 years or so away from hydrocarbons it, almost in their entirety, then I'd say that's purely delusional. It's not going to happen. If the, by the word transition, we mean we'll transition from hydrocarbons being the dominant to being the mi minor share. Well, 20 years, I bet against it. 
seems extremely improbable because the magnitude of demand for metals and minerals needed to displace half of the world's hydrocarbons just just isn't there. But that's a different definition, right? Because if the World Bank forecasts, and they have a forecast where they see assume that the, the absolute demand for energy will saturate, even with growing population and wealth, in 2050, you know, but 2040, 2050 on, demand growth ends. And we increase the quantity of wind, solar, and batteries and electric vehicles by at least an order of magnitude. We get far, far past the, the Paris Accords. We get the aspirations to happen. Even in that model, two-thirds of the world's energy come from hydrocarbons in 2050. So these aspirational models of the transition still leave well over half of the world's energy coming from hydrocarbons out in 2050. Again, to, to invoke systemic risk language, it's pretty important to think about who supplies those hydrocarbons and at what price, both in economic terms and geopolitical terms. Because if those hydrocarbons are supplied and they're, and they're still more than half of the world's energy market at two to 300% higher costs than we are today, this is enormously consequential in political and economic terms. And those aren't being gamed. The, the, ga- the gaming is if you can, is almost as if people are, are living in a, a metaverse playing PowerPoint instead of dealing in the real universe on, on metals and minerals and machines and backhoes, and what you can build, how fast you can build, and the consequences of trying to do these things, pretending that there are no geopolitical economic consequences and therefore social and political consequences from doing mm. something that is stated is impossible. That is the stated goal of eliminating hydrocarbons. If that's the goal, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's there are, the data just don't show that it is as feasible at any velocities that are imaginable. If someone says, why can't that ever happen? Well, that's the different. That's, you know, a century from now, two centuries from now. I don't know. I mean, I could, I'd be, I can make guesses, but those guesses are completely irrelevant. Well, why are they irrelevant? What happens two centuries from now with new fit? So could there be new physics would be the, yes, right? So batteries are a terrible way to store electricity at scale. They work just fine. Lithium batteries are magnificent. They're storing a significant amount of electricity at small scales. In terms of scale, I mean penetration to the global markets. They're, you know, four, 400% and change better than lead acid batteries, which means they probably have a market opportunity that's more like triple that. 10 times what lead acid batteries could achieve just because of that, that change. But they can't, you can't, you can't build enough batteries at any imaginable prices to store energy at the scale society has to store energy to operate efficiently, operate economically, operate in ways that we could tolerate. You have to store energy by the, the, the weeks and months. Supply systems of liquids and gases, including coal, on average, in, you know, we store somewhere between one and three months worth of annual demand at any given time. And you do, one does that for economic reasons, for our, you know, arbitrage on uh, oscillations of markets. You do that for reasons of operational efficiency to ensure you can keep things powered when you need it because of insults of nature, all kinds of accidents and supply chains. Electricity isn't stored at the, the week and month, monthly level. You, you literally can't do it. There isn't enough money in the world to build that many batteries to store one to two months worth of the world's electricity or any country's worth electricity. We're talking tens and hundreds of trillions of dollars of batteries that would have to be built. And we aren't remotely close to having the capability, never mind the money, to build that many batteries.
and and this is kind of kind of at the crux of it, right? Because obviously the pushback for this one is say, well, it's a climate imperative, right? It's a choice between existence and and not. But if I'm if I'm understanding that it right, it's must much of this argument is ultimately independent of economics. Sure, there's systemic risks. Your your battery plant, if copper prices go to forty thousand, but the reality is essentially one that you're talking to is one of the capacity to actually deliver the materials Correct. to create this solid right. state energy world exactly means even if there were a climate imperative it still doesn't change the needle is that, is that right because that's also massively kind of like well, <laughs> what then well that's, so setting us again my my arguments are, are not about whether or not the velocity of climate change whether the climate change debates are hyped or underhyped that has nothing to do with the velocity and the physics of energy of systems that were the motivation is self-evidently as you say the climate motivation to stop burning hydrocarbons I, I you know i'm not obtuse to that but it doesn't matter what the motivation is it doesn't change the energetics and the physics of the systems the fact that you need copper for example copper is not replaceable in a transition copper is an irreplaceable metal there are no substitutes for it well there's one exception on the margin really high voltage long distance transmission lines can use aluminum but nowhere else is there a substitute so yes if here's an analogy that's worth thinking about the global wind and solar industry as renewables today it's really quite big it produces in straight energy terms almost as much energy as the world's oil industry did in 1950 so pretty big it's not trivial the world's a lot bigger, obviously. We're talking almost a century ago. The world's a lot bigger. But in term, in absolute terms, we've got an industry that's producing energy but building machines. Everything about the wind and solar industry, all, all, all renewables require building machines. So we've, we've built enough machines now to have a, mach, a, a machine infrastructure for wind and solar, roughly comparable in energy terms, to the machine infrastructure that existed in 1950 for oil and gas, for oil, sorry. Now, over the next 60 years, we got this incredible increase in the oil industry, about tenfold over 60 years. All that increase came from building more machinery. So now what we're going to do is we're going we, we're saying the energy transition is to increase by more than tenfold, because that's given the scales we have today. We want to increase by 20 to 30-fold, the same starting point, not over 60 or 70 years, but over 10 or 20 years. And the the task is is identical and just in practical terms you have to dig stuff up make machines install machines so you ha you have to believe that the world has developed its industrial capacity to dig things up make machines and install them has improved that capacity by a, a, an amount up to that task or in analogous terms most people know that the empire state building was built in under a year and it was built a long time ago so if we stripped away regulations and permitting does anybody believe the Empire State Building could be built in a week instead of eight months with today's technology? I mean, the question answers itself. It's silly. It's that kind of built-in expectation and the velocity of machine and construction activities that's inherent in all these forecasts. These are, these are really aspirational is an understatement. They're, re they're really silly expectations of what is possible with construction of equipment and movement of things, even assuming there's no purpose. So it doesn't matter what the motivation is. The motivation- Assuming a pure, a pure geopolitical setup right. and free trade and all of those yeah. other things that are going against it. 
so yeah, the, we're not we're not it's, we're not we haven't changed our ability to do those things in any profound way in the last uh, half century. So is the thesis so okay? So well, let's say it. The thesis is let's say a, a delayed transition, right? There, there is well, still let's say in fifty years, there's been no. Well, is it a delayed transition, or I mean, is the expectation that tomorrow? I mean, the, my question I'm leading up to is okay. So, so what about climate change then? Yeah. Well, first, I'm not saying there'd be a delayed transition unless you're talking about a centuries. The, the the next century is going to look a lot like the last century. A lot more energy will be consumed, and a lot more of everything. And the relative shares of the legacy energy sources will shrink, but their absolute consumption will rise. So that's what the future is going to look like, because that's what's been going on for. A century, and that's what will keep going on for a century because that's how the world can operate. An asteroid hitting the Earth, or a really serious pandemic wiping out all of humanity—that's what's going to happen. So that's not a transition, except in the sense that adding natural gas to the world's energy systems was a transition away from a world that had no natural gas at scale. Okay, I mean semantically, that's a transition in terms of both the character and the makeup of energy systems, but. We're not going to transition away from using hydrocarbons. So I'm just, I, I keep saying that because it is not because there's, there's no evidence that it can be done, and it's no evidence that it's been happening. We're we're going to we've been using we've been using more hydrocarbons in the era in the two decades of climate awareness, not less. We've just reduced the percentage of all energy supplied by hydrocarbons by two percentage points. So the percentage, if that's a transition, the percentage has dropped from about eighty six to eighty four. And the absolute consumption of oil, gas, and coal have risen in the last 20 years. I would say I'd take that bet. The next 20 years, we'll see an absolute increase in consumption of the hydrocarbons, probably a slower rate of increasing, but it will go up. And the percentage from hydrocarbons will probably shrink more than two percentage points, maybe by four or five. Could be, you know, it could happen, maybe 10. Who knows? But that's it, not a transition. That's why I keep pushing back on that. The question of that what about climate change it requires an answer that is what i would call an adult answer that makes people who think that we are facing an apocalypse unhappy because they want to do something faster it's the motivation because you want to do something faster doesn't mean it's possible to do it faster if we are going to experience changing climate and we are and will i mean the debate is over the velocity and magnitude of the changes in the climate in the future. The obvious answers fall in two buckets, which are unsatisfactory politically. One is we should be spending far more money on adaptation and resilience. We have the limited commodity in the world is our, our dollars, our capital. And if we squander capital on things that don't stop climate change, and we take dollars away from adaptation and resilience, which are utterly critical, the nice thing about resilience and adaptation is it doesn't it's a middle ground between the, the warring factions on climate change. It's it's a net good no matter what. It's not a net good no matter what to build more windmills or more electric cars. It's definitely not. There's lots of downsides to building more windmills, especially subsidizing them and taking money away from people. They're not it's not all upside, but there's no downside to improving resilience and adaptation to nature's predations. So that should be done. More priorities on that. But most people who are in the climate apocalypse camp see that as capitulation. And well, I think that is unfortunate, but that's how it's phrased. The other solution to the long-term issue of seeking economically equivalent ways to provide power to society, economic equivalent to hydrocarbons in terms of material footprint 
on the planet is to be patient. And no one wants to be patient. We have to have different classes of physics and physical chemistry. We have to build different things than we know how to build today. That takes time. And worse than that, it takes time. You can't accelerate it just with money. It does Money does matter. This is money for basic research. You can't accelerate epiphanies and breakthroughs. They, they happen, unfortunately, they always happen, but they happen in unpredictable ways, which is very unsatisfactory in the political sphere. But that's the other answer. We should put more money into adaptation resilience. We should put more money into basic science and research to find things that are truly magical. This, this is a position I would say, by the way, uh, is not pr- profoundly different than Bill Gates' position. He gave an interview after the Davos last meeting and pointed out that even were we to achieve, quote, net zero by 2050, he said, because the models say this, this would not stop climate change. The climate will keep changing. And more importantly, he has said many times, and it's in, as far as I know, still in the Microsoft Climate Pledge, the technologies we need to affect the energy transition, and I will quote it exactly, it's there twice, don't exist today, end quote. So where do, you, where do the new technologies come from? They come from basic research and science. So I, I, that's the camp I'm in because, first, it's a hold harmless camp. There's net good for all of society for more money in basic research and science, and will ultimately yield new kinds of physics for new kinds of energy machines that we don't have today. Adaptation resilience are also net good for humanity. These things are given short shrift right now because of the hyper-politicization of the debate is that we have to just try with the stuff we have. Well, we're, this list will have, as I've said many times, this, just trying for something that won't make a difference has enormous moral hazard and economic and political consequence. Yeah, which I'm part of the reason I'm excited to have be part of that, I guess, elucidating all sides of the debate, right? And, uh, you know, and, and I think the world lacks long-form, balanced, deep dives into these subjects because, as you say, we've, we've got to get them right and the world exists in a finite resources, whether that's materials or dollars, well, maybe dollars not so much, but, you know, the, 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 the bets and the calls have to be right. Is there anything hopeful you can leave us with in terms of, uh, you know, putting your sort of technologist futurist hat back on? <laughs> Well, uh, that uh, that might be on the horizon that, you know, I mean, carbon capture seems like a a lovely solution if we could get it right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not a carbon capture fan uh, because it, the, the cost in it are astronomical at scale. It just means that you're making energy more expensive. So that's that's uh, I'm not in the camp. I think that's that's a uh, viable uh, with the technologies you know how to use. But look, two, two things uh, make me optimistic, setting aside that I think we will ultimately settle the political f- fractions on this or factions on this around what's actually possible in the short term. But the underlying technology trends mean, mean that we, we have and will have increasing capability for adaptation and resilience at ever lower costs. Those, those are the things that are moving more quickly. And that's, that's important. It's not trivial. And the class of technologies that will make us wealthier, which is the overwhelming nature of technology progress, those kinds of things will make it easier for us to do things that today are too expensive, but you, we have to wait till we have the wealth. If we, it's kind of, the wealth doesn't exist. The future wealth doesn't exist today. So that comes back to my patience point. I'm not optimistic that people will get patience and resolve these things, frankly. I think in the short term, though, we're going to have something of a denouement similar to what Europe and Germany have experienced. They have discovered that you can't surge 
solar energy and windmills. So their solution to getting off of Russian gas, which is no different than getting off gas in general, is to get other people's gas, <laughs> America's gas, other pipeline gas from Azerbaijan. So that's going to be the story of the future for the rest of the world. They're going to do more windmills. We'll build more of them, more solar arrays, more electric cars. But we're going to do more of the other stuff, and we'll do all of them more efficiently because technology is going to permit that. And we'll have greater wealth capabilities to build into resilience into our lives and and adaptation. Those those are all positive. That's but that's the story of humanity. The idea that this is a unique point in pivot in history for our need to have wealth and technology to uh, stand up against nature's predations. The idea that this is the first time we face those challenges is pr- profoundly myopic. Of course, we face them, and we have much better technology capability today than ever in history to uh, to deal with those kinds of challenges. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I, I'll recommend again your book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the ne- Next Economic Boom and the Roaring 2020s. And Mark, I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure this will generate a lot of discussion and debate. I, and I, again, I urge that, you know, that actually I think this this kind of discussion and actually trying to understand the realities of the circumstances we're in is, is what we all need to be doing and therefore have better solutions when and if they arise. I, I couldn't agree more that discussion is what's needed as opposed to, uh, as we both know, ad hominem or pure passion. Uh, we could all be passionate, but let's let's try to let's try to find answers to questions. And I'm glad you had had me on. I uh, appreciate the platform to uh, preach the gospel of reality as I see it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.